Good morning, Trinity. Pastor Ronnie Garcia, it's good to be with you. So recently I heard an incredible and true story from a pastor in Texas. His, his name is Adam Jones. In the 1980s, Adam's brother, Reed, went to graduate school in St. Kitts. After his second year, Reed came home for break. His, his mother wanted to have a big family dinner since he was back, you know, to celebrate him. They picked him up from the airport. He had like bleached out hair. His mom kind of poked fun at him for that, uh, to which, you know, Reed kind of awkwardly responded, later, mom. Well, that night after dinner, Reed announces to the family. He says, I have something to tell you guys. And I did not want to tell you until I was home so that you can see me. And then his body began to tremble and he wept. See, what had happened is earlier that May, Reed and his roommate Lenny decided to rent a small boat, right? It was really just a a raft with a small engine and just tool around there in the bay. Well, while they were were out, the engine broke. So the two of them decided to tinker with it and both of these guys got hyper-focused. They opened up the engine, started pulling out parts, messing with the choke, trying to restart. All the while, the current is pulling them out to sea. Then when they finally looked up, they noticed that they were quite far away from the island, dead in the water, and then like this this storm suddenly comes upon them. And at that point, everything that could go wrong did. The sun baked them, they had no water. When night came, a huge tempest blew through, the raft flipped over many times. Reed lost his glasses. Apparently he can't see anything without his glasses. Then Lenny, his roommate, right, tells him that he can't swim. An ocean liner almost cuts these two in half. They scream and scream. No one heard them. The next day, sharks start circling them, even like bumping the raft with their noses. Now about that time, panic kind of broke out in the island. Their friends, they realized that that they were missing. They started going out on boats and small aircraft to search for them, but no one could find them. One of their professors even called Washington, D.C., Uh, to try to get the Coast Guard, and and what they got was, I'm sorry, that's outside of the U.S. Coast Guard jurisdiction. But their their, their professor pressed on and and said, hey, these guys are American citizens. And he pressed and pressed, and finally they relented. Now, this is the 80s, right? So the Coast Guard was just about to roll out this kind of, I guess, like a new computerized software system. Hadn't been used yet, where they input all the sea currents and wind information and it kind of spits out a grid to where the lost person is. Well, they did that, and the grid said that they were 250 miles away. And they told them that there was less than 1% chance of finding them. They didn't even know if this computer system was right. Well, before the sunset of the second day, they sent a plane to that spot, and by God's mercy, the plane spotted them. The plane dropped a flare and a boat came and retrieved them. Reed and Lenny spent a week in intensive care. Now, after the family finished hearing Reed tell his story, I mean, they were traumatized and they wept. I mean, for months, Adam, the brother, he would have this recurring nightmare of his parents standing on a shore on the shore of a beach, watching his brother get swept away by the currents of the sea. 
Or why do I begin like this? But we're in a sermon series called The Forgotten Torah, where we've been giving attention to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're currently in Deuteronomy, and we've learned that Deuteronomy is a series of farewell sermons by Moses. Israel's about to go into the promised land, but Moses himself was not allowed to enter. And so Deuteronomy records his final words of encouragement to them as they go. And guess what? Moses is afraid. Moses is afraid that when the next generation wades out into the bay of the promised land, that they will get swept away by the currents of culture, idols, and unbelief, and then die. And listen closely, guys. This isn't about them only. What about us? What about our children? We live in a time where the vision of the world of what is good, of what is beautiful, what what life is about, these tectonic questions, they are highly contested. And if you or I or our children cannot skillfully enter into this new world, then we will all find ourselves dying spiritually dehydrated, alone and at sea. So this morning, We're looking at one section in Moses' second farewell address called the Shema. Shema is just a Hebrew word, which means to hear or to listen. And in this section, we are going to rediscover God's ancient path, not just for surviving, but flourishing in a stormy, seductive world and culture. These ancient words are exactly what our modern hearts need. So this morning, as we study the Shema, as it's called, three themes will emerge. The power of love, the reach of truth, and the story of grace. Those will be our three headings. So with that introduction, let's give attention to God's timeless and true words, which please stand with me. And we're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God, lest the anger of your Lord, your God, be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for the preacher. Amen. You may be seated. So I mentioned in the introduction, the passage we just read together is called the Shema. And it's one of the most important sections of the Hebrew Bible. In fact, to to this day, Orthodox Jews will still recite verses four and five twice daily as a part of their daily prayers. When they say the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. They're not answering the question, how many is God? They're answering this. Who is the God of Israel? To that, they respond, Yahweh is God. Yahweh alone. There is no other God. It's not just that there, that, that there are other gods, but our God is better. Literally, no other gods exist. And we know, as a Jew would say, we know God by his first name, his covenant name. Now, what comes next is equally important. So in verses 6 and 7, Moses will share words or commands for the people to obey and follow. But that's not where he starts. So Moses says in verse 5, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. So before Moses gets to the rules, he starts with love. Now, why is this? It is because love is something different than what our culture thinks. More than that, it has a power that we don't quite understand. And let me illustrate this. I have a complex relationship with food and exercise. I used to be an athlete, but I'm on the wrong side of 40, so you know. Uh, I just look at chocolate cake and I gain 15 pounds. So listen, I know what's good for me. I mean, I have a stinking master's in science. I know how calories work. This isn't rocket science. I have all the cognitive information that I need to make smart choices. But then what happens? I go to a restaurant and a waitress asks, sir, would you like steamed vegetables as your side? To which I respond, of course not. What I want is double fried French fries with ketchup in a 64 ounce glass, please. (laughs) Right? Now, why is this the case? Now, listen, it is because Humans do not do what they understand to be right or wrong. We do what we love. You see the power of love? It's not a cognitive issue. Moses does not start with the rules. He starts with love because we do what we love. Now, when Moses says to love, he says to do so with your heart, soul, and might. Now, Moses isn't trying to like artificially divide your personhood, right? What he is saying, what he is doing by saying it like that is emphatically reinforcing the absolute and singular devotion to Yahweh. See, the heart, according to the Bible, it's not just like a um, like an emotions thermometer. It is the seat of our will and our thoughts and imagination. When it says love him with your might, it's not just talking about your muscles. It says love him with with your resources, with all that you are and all that you have. Now, here's the implication for us in our modern time. In our modern culture, love is understood as a feeling that we have when we are with another person. And that's how come it's not uncommon for a person to say, I am leaving this person because I fell out of love 
as if it was something that happened to us, right? Or sometimes, as well, another way we understand love is one person leaving another person alone to make the decisions they want, no matter the consequences. So, for instance, a modern refrain is, love wins, which means not that I am committing to you personally, but that I will leave you alone so that you can do what you think you want. Not caring about other people's choices is a modern version of love. And because that is the case, the Bible's vision of love is almost unintelligible in our culture. The Bible sees love as a disposition of permanence and sacrifice with and for the other, see? So in this case, we are invited to see God and say, I am staying by you, Lord, even when other idols call my name. I will make deep personal costs and sacrifices, even if it contradicts my intuitions and personal desires. And I'll do this to show you my unwavering loyalty. Now listen, I don't know, I don't know if that sounds romantic or not, but it should. I had a high school sweetheart. We dated for several years. It didn't work out. She's a good girl, though, right? Uh, in college, I was um, a single guy for several years. And even though I had long been broken up with this girl, you know, I always thought about her. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite get over her. She was kind of a, a reference point of comparison. Uh, again, I couldn't get over her, even though we didn't even talk at all. But all of that changed right after college. When I met Amanda, right? When I met my wife, what I experienced was a deep desire towards permanence and sacrifice. In that context, all of my lesser loves were expulsed, right? I never thought about my ex-girlfriend anymore. Only love has the power to drive out lesser loves. And that love took on the character of permanence and self-sacrifice at all costs. And, and, and so it's in that context in which my feelings, the feelings I had for her could be expressed without the feelings themselves becoming the definition of love. So can you see the power of love? We do what we do because we love what we love. So we have to get our hearts around this. Biblical love is sophisticated and fierce and, and singularly and even painfully devoted Love is the key with the Lord because it drives out other lesser loves and it moves us towards permanence. Without the Lord being the chief recipient of our love, our supreme love, you, me, our children will get pulled away by the tides and currents of culture and false gods and lesser loves. Now, after Moses establishes that loving God is what shapes our choices, right? We do what we love. Only then does he get to the body or content of faith. In verse six, he says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, your deep affections for God now have to play out in your life. Our love has to get rolled out in the real world. Love for God cannot simply be this sort of disembodied idea that is hidden in your brain. If your love does not expand the boundaries of your allegiance to all parts of your life, that is, if it doesn't touch the social, 
psychological, spiritual, financial, vocational aspects of your life, then it cannot be love at all. There has to be a real correlation. And yet, this is where we find ourselves, right? I mean, it seems crazy that Moses had to make this explicit for his people, but my goodness, we definitely need to make it explicit in our modern culture, right? I mean, how did we get to the place where it is possible that what we believe and what we do require no relationship or no correlation? Let me suggest that the roots of this in our modern culture actually started in the Enlightenment. Now, listen, I'm not trying to get all professorial on you guys. I know this is a little bit like philosophically intense or whatever, but I'm going to try to distill it for us and and give us like the close notes. But listen, there was this guy, his name was Immanuel Kant. You you remember him from Philosophy 101. Uh, He's going to be who I work with principally. Uh, Kant, like so many others in the Enlightenment, they were enamored with the power of reason, right? He was confident that reason and scientific inquiry were neutral and were strictly separated from matters of faith. In fact, he set out to address the relationship of reason to experience. So in Kant's estimation, you have on one hand your feelings or the things that are true for me or for you. That's kind of like the upper story of reality. And then you have facts. And facts are what is true for everyone, the lower story of reality. And so what you're seeing is reality is now divided. There's, there's different sectors of reality, upper and lower story. Now, while saying it like that may seem absolutely inconsequential, the split or the divorce between facts and values is the basis for secularism, right? Science is what you do with your brains and religion is what you do with your heart. Now, listen, although that enlightenment framework is a huge philosophical leap of faith to most people in our culture, that is just how it is. That's just reality, as if objectivity and subjectivity could be divorced from one another. This way of seeing life is blindly accepted in our modern culture, and no one even understands that this is a philosophical and secular framework, right? And so as a result, What you believe and what you do can absolutely be separate. But if you instinctively buy into this way of understanding the world, then that is the surest way to get swept up by the currents of your time. Moses would have been incredibly impatient with that kind of mindset. The truth about God must extend beyond the halls of your chest and brain. Moses says, right, beginning there in verse 7, he says, teach, or or another way of saying that is like, indoctrinate, don't be neutral, teach your children about the truth of the world, talk about it. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, bind them on your hands and on your eyes, write them on the entryway of your house and even in your city gates. And what does this mean? (laughs) What does that mean? It means that every part of your real life should be baptized and reimagined by your faith, by your beliefs. Your loyalty to God must be so pressed into your life and the life of your children that everything from math to vocation to your imagination must be soaking with God's wisdom and commandments. 
Relationship with God can't just be a cultural and Sunday thing. Now, listen, guys, very closely. The Bible is not is not just truth about religion. The Bible is truth about everything. There is no divorce. When Moses references in verse 9, the doorposts of your house and your gates, he's merging your your private life and your public life, right? Because in that context, the city gates were, 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 was where public life happened, where judges would make rulings even. Now listen, this, that is so hard for us to even understand because the tides of our culture are pulling on us so hard. We have bought the lie that a person can make proposals and propositions about the world with no prior religious commitments. That's not even possible. That, that, that is philosophically naive. And the church, too, has totally bought into this. When we think about the reach of God's truth, we, our culture has one or two intuitions. We either think that what we believe about God is primarily interior and thus like only suitable for private reflection, or we believe that matters actually don't matter, that they're completely inconsequential, and that all things are just a matter of external performance. But listen, in both cases, the truth of God is restricted to a sector of reality that is smaller than everything. But God wants it all. Listen, Trinity, we, we have got to work, ex- be, work extremely carefully against this current. Do not compartmentalize your life. Because once you go down that road, it's just a matter of time until all semblances of sincere love for Christ disappears. True love is rooted in the heart, but practiced in your life. You might say you love God, but if that love is never habituated and practiced in your life, your heart will grow cold. Well, I have my spiritual life over here, right? What I do on Sundays. And I have my real life over here, what I do on Monday through Saturday, and never the two shall touch. When that happens, it's just a matter of time until you wake up one Sunday morning and say, who am I kidding? I am over it. My time in church was just a silly or cute little season in my life when I was just I was just given over to religious excesses. Right. Meanwhile, you'll you'll look at your your life's work, your, your money through Saturday and ask, can my life be summarized by a paycheck? What is this all for? Is there any overarching purpose? And the answer is a resounding and divine yes, but you won't see it. Instead, the cynicism of our current culture will beat you down until you stop dreaming and you give into a life riddled with resentment. Most of the upper class Western world has bought into this. And guess where it has taken us? Highest rates of clinical depression in the history of the world, new pathologies, sharply rising suicide rates, existential angst and homelessness. See, many now are even going on these really expensive pilgrimages to ancient and mystical cultures looking for answers, right? Don't accept this fragmentation of God's truth.
Allow it to expand into every corner of who you are. Let's move to the final section of the Shema. Moses is preparing his people to enter into a new world with attractive and seductive idols. And when they get there, he doesn't want them to get swept away. So the Shema, we, so far in it, we've examined the power of love, how it is the single most powerful agent to shape and anchor our lives. Right? We do what we love. Then we examined the reach of truth. Right? Moses encouraged Israel to take the words of God, which which were first written on their hearts, and then allow them to saturate every part and every second of their lives. No uh, inner, outer, public, and private, right? Because a fragmented understanding of God's truth is ultimately unsatisfying. And now Moses has this one last section. And so let me just set this up with an illustration from the movie Blood Diamond. And let me just say that every time a movie, a pastor uh, mentions a movie, everyone's eager to watch the movie. Um, it is not a movie suitable for all audiences. So parents, please do your due diligence before you make it your family movie night, okay? But the movie principally takes place in Sierra Leone, which is riddled with political unrest. And uh, a revolutionary group is, is mounting a war, principally by enslaving people and using diamond mining to fund their war. Well, a fisherman named Vandy is separated from his family, and he's forced to work for this rebel group. And while working, he finds one of the most valuable diamonds ever mined. And that diamond becomes the way in which he and his family can escape the the continent. But while Vandy is separated from his family, his son is also kidnapped, just like an eight-year-old kid or so. He's kidnapped, brainwashed, forced to do awful things, and then he's turned into a child soldier. So the climax of the movie is when Vandy is trying to get both the diamond and his son. But the son, his name is Dia, he finds him and he turns the gun on his father. Right? He doesn't even recognize him anymore. And so he's about to kill him. So his father says, Dia, what, what are you doing, Dia? And then what follows is he, he begins to tell his son who he is. Look at me. You are Dia Vandy of our tribe. Now, like the father is staring down the barrel of this gun as his son is pointing it right at him. But he continues. He says, you are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She wakes by the fire making plantains and makes stew with your sister. And Babu, the wild dog that minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. This boy has been swept up into a lie, but the father loves him, and the only way to bring him back is to remind him of who he is. He reminds him of his identity, of his story, of of where he comes from. And this makes all the difference. And see, Moses says to his people, starting in verse 10 and following, he says, you're about to go into a land as free people. And when you get there, you will enjoy cities that you did not build, filled with houses, with amazing things that you did not buy, 
cisterns you did not dig and fruitful vineyards that you did not plant. God did all of this for you. He loves you. Don't forget the story of grace. Don't forget who you are. God says, I'm the one who rescued you from Egypt and made you my own. Right. Verse 13, when it says it is the Lord, your God, you shall fear. That's just another way of saying, don't forget to whom you belong. God is looking at his people saying, I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again. Trinity, look around. All these nice things we have, all these gifts, these are gifts of grace. Listen, everyone, the moment you look around and see these nice things in your life and say, I earned these things. It is in that moment that you forget the story of grace and you will turn into someone else, into a person you don't like. Look. I am sure that all of you worked extremely hard for what you have. But even still, you are not self-made. If you were born in Madagascar in 1819, I don't care how much hard work you put in, you would not have what you have. You don't control when and where you were born. It's a gift. Today, there are people who diligently work 80 honest and grueling hours a week in mines in China. And for all their hard work and diligence, they don't have what we have. What's my point? If you can't look around and couch your life in a story of God's unmerited grace, then you will forget who you are. You will begin to credit yourself, turn your back on the Lord, And the idols of this world will sweep you out to sea until you don't recognize yourself anymore. So every day, twice a day, like a Hebrew boy reciting the Shema, you need to look around with a heart dripping with thanksgiving and say, My Lord, you have given me all things. You have been more kind to me than I deserve. And let that refrain shape your story, your family life, your identity. All right, let me just conclude with one last very short observation. Remember what we've studied so far, right? Moses is in the middle of his second farewell sermon, and this section is called the Shema. And Moses speaks to them because he, he doesn't want his people to get washed away by idols when they get to the promised land. And so the Shema is of particular importance because it helps us to see the power of love, right? We do what we love. The reach of truth, right? There's no private, public, holy, secular division with God. And then, of course, the story of grace. We remember who we are and how we have been loved. But then in verse 14, Moses warns. He says, do not go after other gods. The gods of the people around you, don't follow them. God is in our midst, and he is a jealous God. And if you do... The anger of the Lord, verse 15, will destroy you. Do you feel the intensity of this? Listen, if you don't know the whole point of Christianity, I want you to listen really carefully. 
the story of God's people does not end at verse 15. It ends on a cross. God's pure, righteous, and jealous anger burned against his own son as Jesus, the son of God, hung and died on a cross. Listen, Jesus Christ acts according to what he loves too. And Jesus loves us so much he was willing to do anything to have you, his life for yours, as your substitute. This reality alone is what is beautiful enough to enchant our hearts and direct our allegiance to God, our loving Father. Being consumed by this love, this love that God has for you, is the core of the ancient path for flourishing. Don't ever grow weary of telling this story to your heart and to your children's heart. Amen.